From Washington, I'm David Schultz, and this is Talking Tax. So you might remember some months back we had an exit interview with the OECD's former tax policy chief, Grace Perez-Navarro, who updated us on the status of the international tax deal, a two-pillar plan that reshapes how taxes are paid across borders. Today, Bloomberg tax reporter Lauren Bella sits down with the current director at the OECD Center for Tax Policy and Administration, Manal Corwin. They talk about the deal's big developments this summer, possible sticking points in the negotiations, and what's next for the global tax pact. As you know, as we're all aware, July was a really busy month for the OECD. We saw the release of several documents, including an outcome statement on the progress of the global tax deal and a tranche of guidance, as well as a lengthy consultation document on amount B soon after that. Uh, The topic that people really want to talk about these days is amount A. And we had that outcome statement that was released uh, July 12th. Um, In the outcome statement, the document said that the text of the multilateral convention had been delivered, but some jurisdictions still had remaining concerns. Um, Could you elaborate on what those concerns are? And in particular, was one of the concerns the treatment of withholding taxes? Um, Well, you know, and as you said, it's been it's been an active and a busy month. Um, We did uh, release uh, an outcome statement. Um, at, at early last month, and, and that was an important development. There were uh, several components, important components of that outcome statement, the first of which is the, uh, uh, was the text of a multilateral convention to implement Amount A. And as you noted, um, there was, there's was there been uh, a lot of focus on that. Um, and as the outcome statement had um, noted, there there are a number of open um, items um, that uh, that are being um, worked on right now, um, technical mm-hmm. open technical issues. We are working now to resolve those. There are a small number of discrete technical points that involve uh, a few jurisdictions, um, and when those are resolved, that will put us in a position to then finalize the text of the MLC, which will then allow it to um, you know to get it ready for opening for signature, okay. and so. Um, and then in terms of the technical issues, there's, you know, it's at this point um, not helpful because they are sort of technical issues embedded within a broader context. So if if what you're asking is the is the debate about whether withholding taxes are going to be uh, uh included or not included as part of the determination of the allocation of uh, of, of the amount a taxing yes. right the, the that is not the issue it is not as um as as sort of broad as that um a withholding taxes will be taken into account it's sort of a deeper you know sort of technical architecture of the mechanisms by which uh, a number of the of these provisions work um that is what's under discussion in the context of the um, MDSH safe harbor certain aspects of the calc- the, the treatment of withholding taxes etc but not uh you know a, 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 as something as significant as whether or not withholding taxes are taken into account they will be taken into account they will be so mm-hmm. can we expand on that so can you explain further about the definition of taken into account so they will be included in the calculation of the reallocation is that correct yeah or- again i think until the the 
negotiations on these technical points are are final. It wouldn't be appropriate to um, break down the various pieces. And again, there was a reason that the the text was not yet public and available for signature for those things to be worked out. So um, at this point, uh, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to elaborate. No, no, I just, I guess my my question was, when you say taken into account, it's um, as opposed to taken into account at all. Correct. Like, like some jurisdictions have been arguing to for. I yeah, there's been a lot my... of discussion as to the appropriate treatment of withholding taxes and a full mm-hmm. range of conversations about whether they should be completely ex- excluded from the discussion or, you know, included 100% in the discussion. And as with all negotiations, you know, that those conversations have evolved and there's beginning to be a convergence on appropriate treatment. Okay. Okay. I'm I'm very happy for that clarification. I know you mentioned there are some technical points that are being discussed. What is the status of that? And and when can we expect a public copy of the MLC to be released? Um, there has been tremendous progress and um, and tremendous convergence on you know tough issues that have been resolved amongst the jurisdictions. Um, you wouldn't have gotten 138 jurisdictions to sign on to a statement that says that acknowledges that progress and says that there are a few outstanding technical issues that need to be resolved if we're we're not close. You know, we are close. They are important um, technical issues and they are ones that need to be, um, you know, resolved to actually to, to achieve success. And the expectation would be that we can resolve those issues early in the fall. Um, then th- there's work that has to be done on the MLC text itself, um, because like all treaties, once you've gotten agreement um, and, and consensus, there's work that has to be done um, to make sure that, um, you know, that you, there's a fair amount of cleanup work that has to be done. You've got to address cross-references, prepare um, translations, and make sure, um, you know, that you've got a document that's prepared for signature. And that usually happens um, before it's made public. Obviously, the text is public to all of the delegates, and they've been working with the text. Um, so the delegates themselves have it. So what is the OECD's long-term plan to deliver Amount A when it faces significant hurdles with the U.S. signing and ratification, which is required to meet the minimum conditions set out in the consultation document for the extension of the DST freeze. What, what is the plan going forward if the U.S. doesn't sign, and what is the plan going forward if Congress doesn't want to ratify this document? Well, I mean, look, fundamentally, the path to success here with respect to um, the current Pillar 1 solution, it, you, you need to get to three milestones. There are three key milestones, each of which has to be achieved to get to a finish line. Um, and the first is the negotiations within the inclusive framework amongst the delegates of those key features, that architecture of Amount A, the, the aspects of Amount E, B that must be concluded. Um, um, so that first milestone is to agree that architecture and get to a text of the MLC um, that can be shared publicly. And so as I as I noted, we're at the point where we've got those final pieces to resolve. And if resolved, then allow us to um, prepare a text for signature and publicize it. Mm-hmm. Um, the second 
milestone is that the MLC has to be signed, as you referenced, um, as soon as practical, taking into consideration the necessary domestic consultation, legislative and administrative processes. But as you noted within the outcome statement, there is an extension of the standstill uh, agreement for one year um, conditioned upon getting that critical mass of signatures yes. by year end. So that is the next milestone to um, look towards. And, you know, signature is uh, by the by the various uh, delegates you need to have at least 30 jurisdictions representing 60% of entities in scope, um, and that would include the U.S. Um, yes. The U.S. was supportive of the outcome statement, and, you know, once we have that text and it's available, you know, the, the goal would be to get to that uh, level of signature and get, you know, to the to that end of the year milestone. Mm -hmm. Then the MLC has to be ratified. That's the final for it to be to come into a to effect by again. And there again, there's that critical mass requirement for the MLC yes. to become it into effect. Yes. And you can't get to um, a conversation that that is obviously the province of legislatures and parliaments across yeah the globe. Um, it's not just a U.S. issue. It's across the globe. And but we need to get to the first two for there to, um, you know, to be a, a conversation uh, by legislatures of of the text. And mm. so I think our view at this point is we need to achieve the milestone so that there's actually a conversation to be had. So when we're talking about the outcome statement and the 130 plus countries that signed on to it and agreed to it from the inclusive framework, surprisingly, Canada was not one of those countries. And it recently, on August 4th, released updated DST legislation for consultation. The draft of the text basically said that um, this DST would come into effect on January 1, 2024, or if the amount I treaty didn't come into effect before then. What are the consequences of Canada failing to agree to the outcome statement and, and the DST freeze? And do you think that the fact that Canada is an OECD country and has decided not to agree to this extension of the DST moratorium, uh, do you think that that has weakened amount A negotiations or shifted um, factions in negotiations at all? Um, just to be clear that the, 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 the way that the standstill works is it's focused on the, the imposition of the tax, not necessarily the enactment of legislation um, mm. to, uh, yes. to, to collect. And so there is an, uh, there's, there's potentially opportunities there to, to think about that. I think it's important to note that Canada had this legislation drafted um, and ready to go before the October agreement in yes. 2021 and had held off implementation pursuant to that agreement. Um, that October agreement is ex expected to expire or is on, on its, by its terms, expires at the end of this year, and that was what necessitated the need for the extension in the outcome statement. Canada did not sign on to the outcome statement, but nevertheless was was has been very public about their support for the MLC and all other aspects of the outcome statement, and um, and is very supportive of, of a coordinated approach to uh, addressing the the tax challenges of, of the digitalization of the global economy. So I think they are supportive and I think conversations are ongoing um, about how to um, 
to you know thread the needle and make sure that the momentum that has been achieved and is reflected in the outcome statement is not compromised by the um, implementation or the collection of DSTs, just as countries are be, are able to um, you know agree on the architecture. So let's then um, transition to amount B. There is a very voluminous um, consultation document that was released July 17th, along with a couple of other documents that pertain to the uh, Global Tax Pact. Amount B, as we know, is a um, part of Pillar 1 that seeks to simplify transfer pricing methods. And we know that the U.S. has shared its preference for the scoping method that was laid out by the consultation document. It has chosen alternative A, which some might describe as the more quantitative method. Is there any uh, sense of who might benefit from which approach? Or uh, is it kind of a mixed bag depending on the jurisdiction's priorities, the type of economies they have, and even the political implications of selecting one approach? Well, I think amount B, um, the the availability of a simplified methodology is really, really important to developing countries um, for, you know, for, you know, probably obvious reasons um, in terms of capacity as well as the absence of comparables. Um, So are are eager to uh, preserve that. And that was um, it was very much that the availability of their voice at the table was important to um, the, the development of amount B. It's not so much just whether, you know, if you're asking, is it a priority for more, a higher priority for some countries as opposed to others, that's certainly the case. You have some mm-hmm. countries who who feel very strongly about the need um, for amount B, you know, including developing countries uh, um, and other uh, and other economies where there's there's a value to having uh, a defined and, a, and a, a relatively stable scope for, for certainty and stability of amount B. And right. for other countries, it's just less of a priority for, for various reasons. And you you, you know, you can you know talk to those jurisdictions about the yeah. reasons, um, but they were more involved with pillar one more for amount A and not so much for amount B. And so you sure. see the reference to in the outcome statement reference to interdependence between amount B and amount A. And it is exactly to acknowledge that you have that the, that amount B and amount A represent very differing priorities amongst different jurisdictions. And because it's a package and it's because it's a negotiation and a deal, um, they are looking to ensure that for those countries that prioritize amount B, they want to see it. Uh, they want to make sure that the their agreeing to amount A, which may be less of a priority, um, is is gets them what they need, what their priorities are in amount B and vice versa. But I should emphasize that that's not the case with respect to the, the the baseline application of amount B in the case of low capacity jurisdictions without comparables, that the interdependence is not applicable in that circumstance. Mm-hmm. What's the likelihood that countries uh, in the inclusive framework won't come to a consensus on one or the other, and that it very well may be that we could get a, a combination of both the alternative A and alternative B scoping methodologies for a third option. And so what's uh, the likelihood that they'd come up with a third option? And um, can you give us a sense of the kind of feedback you've received from stakeholders so far on the consultation document? 
I have not yet um, myself delved into that feedback. The team that is focused on this technically are, are the ones that are, are tracking that. So I haven't, you know, I certainly will be looking at it, as, you know, as we get into the negotiations, but I haven't, um, I can't report yet on that feedback. Um, and as, okay. as you know, that consultation is open through September 1st. Yes. So. So we, it's an ongoing input. Um, I will say you're going to, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm aware and familiar with the various um, views. And um, so it won't be, you know, I, I know that the feedback will, you know, likely be consistent with some of the themes we've heard before. But to your question as to what's possible, again, it's, you know, it's difficult to speculate and ultimately, you know, the the value, these negotiations are very real. Um, yep. The discussions are very real. And so outcomes aren't always predictable as um, because they're not preordained. And so, of course. Uh, but that said, I do think, um, you know, uh, based on experience of, of watching how um, consensus is achieved, it often, you often get there because you've, you've, been able to forge a path that comp that brings together multiple perspectives and that's so you know so in that regard seeing an outcome that is um you know seeing an outcome that has an aspects of both quantitative and qualitative you know wouldn't be surprising um mm -hmm. and you know sometimes it's just these labels are are you know so binary that they're not you know, if, if if you have an outcome that isn't purely quantitative, you could call that qualitative, but it may have a quantitative aspect. So like so much of amount A, for example, has some, you know, quantitative as well as qualitative components in it. So yes. I think and, that- And um, folks have, you know, have made that yeah. point as well. They've yeah, said, yeah. it's not that uh, alternative A is not qualitative. It's just that alternative B would it would involve additional qualitative scoping criteria? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then uh, my last question for amount B is, is amount B a safe harbor or a mandatory measure? And will developing countries be able to use it even if amount A does not pan out if amount A fails? Yeah, I, mean, I think um, I think that the goal would be to have the baseline version of Mount be available for developing countries um, in any case. But again, that this is this is part of the next couple of months, um, and so I I think you know we need to leave the the delegates to finalize um, the where they end up um, after these discussions. But like I said earlier, there is a uh, you know, a general consensus around the notion that this is really, really important to have the amount B methodology available for developing countries or low capacity jurisdictions, I should say, low capacity jurisdictions where there are no or very few comparables. And mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, the, you know, ideally that that would be an outcome with that does not depend on the success of the rest of the negotiation. Okay. And we expect whatever comes of amount B to in the in the this these negotiations around the consultation document um, to be included in the 2024 transfer pricing guidelines, correct? Yes, I mean I think that the, the again that would be something that's discussed as to what aspects of the outcome of the negotiations are incorporated in the guidelines. Um, but there mm -hmm. is absolutely an intent to incorporate appropriate components of that negotiation into the transfer pricing guidelines. Great, and that and that's not a secret. We it, that was. In the, um, I believe that was in the outcome statement. Let's move on to pillar two. We got some administrative guidance on on pillar two as well. That was released July seventeenth. 
Um, we received an undertax profits rule transitional state uh, safe harbor, a measure that would potentially alleviate some of the political tension that's brewed in the U.S. over Pillar 2, um, specifically with regard to UTPR. Um, a congressional delegation is expected to visit Paris at the end of the month or in early September. And I guess uh, my first question here is, have U.S. lawmakers conveyed to the OECD and the inclusive framework what they hope to discuss as part of this visit? And are there specific demands that, that they've primed you for or that they're going to make? Um, well, not, you know, not, they've not formally uh, provided a list of, of questions or uh, an agenda for discussion, but certainly um, the certain members of, of, of Congress and, you know, we, we've, the OEC has received, has sent letters um, and um, there that have been vocal about um, concerns, different aspects of concerns. And we've also um, had conversations with congressional staff. Um, we, you know, members of the OECD staff in the past, um, because, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, we're available to um, answer questions and provide um, information as as appropriate. Um, uh, so, so no, I don't, we don't have a specific agenda or, or, or specific demands, if you will. I mean, again, we are a platform for collaboration and, you know, we're, we're we welcome um, engagement by all, um, all stakeholders and and um, you know are available to provide the information that we can about um, you know that's available um, that and uh, again is appropriate to provide uh, about the the process and the you know the technical underpinnings um, but but obviously parliaments and legislatures ultimately should be working with their own domestic uh, delegates as well. And we have seen low tax or no tax jurisdictions considering adopting corporate taxes uh, that could qualify um, as a QD, QDMTT. Um, for example, just this month we saw Bermuda um, contemplate a corporate income tax that that will be between nine and fifteen percent. I do you see this kind of becoming a trend? I mean, you you already uh, alluded to it before, but will we expect to see um, you know island nations, well, other low tax and no tax jurisdictions start to contemplate these kinds of taxes as a result of Pillar Two? Yeah, I mean, I think that has been um, what what we're seeing as a trend. We have over 50 jurisdictions that are taking steps towards uh, implementing. And as you said, um, the Bermuda is the most recent, I think, mm -hmm. to announce um, their plans to to consider implementation of of the minimum tax. And I think you know that it, it's operating, you know, consistent with I think the goal here. It's the existence of that global min tax is um, it. The, the goal was to ease the pressure on countries to have to offer excessive tax incentives to attract investment um, uh, and open the door for corporate income tax and tax incentive reforms that are aligned with their domestic policy goals. So particularly helpful for for developing countries. Um, um, and so when countries are competing each other, uh, competing with each other for investment, they're doing it on on the basis of uh, other economic factors and not just, uh, you know, low or no tax rate opportunities. And so that's the goal. And to see, um, you know, countries that had previously had zero tax begin to put that in place um, is uh, 
uh, I think, indicative and consistent with what the um, ultimate goal was, was to to limit the attraction of investment in low or no tax jurisdictions by by making those um, sort of a thing of the past. Right. And one last question before we wrap up, because I want to be cognizant of your time as well. We know that things are in full swing with regard to the implementation of Pillar 2 in the EU, where now jurisdictions have to take the Pillar 2 rules and implement them, write them into their own domestic legislation. What do you say to concerns about deviations between countries implementing Pillar 2 rules? Yeah, no, I think coordinated implementation is going to be important and is obviously a, a big concern for um, for taxpayers and for governments because, you know, the countries want to protect their base associated with the tax that the revenue that, that you know, that they believe is, you know, their revenue as well as, um, you know, uh, businesses don't want to be taxed, um, have multiple tax incidents of tax, double taxation as a result of inconsistent application. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that is um, a, a, an important focus uh, for the work and an important focus for the continued uh guidance um, being provided and providing uniform, you know, the globe information return, having a consistent information return, providing guidance on questions that are not clear. Um, you know, looking ahead, we're we're working on a handbook which would provide a step-by-step approach um, uh, on the application of the of the globe rules. So that's important both for consistency, but also for supporting uh, countries that are have low capacity and need technical, more technical mm-hmm. uh, assistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will have uh, a peer review process, importantly, that will incorporate to uh, allow jurisdictions and say, stakeholders to assess the status of of domestic rules that are implementing the global provisions and make sure that they are in fact qualified um, and applied uh, uh, consistently. Um, So peer review will be uh, another mechanism for doing that. Um, um, And then, um, you know, in addition, we're working on some model competent authority agreements and other technology solutions to to promote consistency. So, you know, it's it's an important question. It's it's an area that um, is a priority and one that, you know, what what we will do what we can as a as a platform to um, enable uh, countries to, um, you know, hold each other accountable for consistency. That was Manal Corwin, the new head of the OECD Center for Tax Policy and Administration, speaking with Bloomberg Tax's Lauren Bella. And that's it for today's podcast. You can find up-to-the-minute news and the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax was produced by myself, David Schultz. Meg Shreve is our editor. From Washington, I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. I felt like I was in jail every day when I was going to work. I'm like, I got to get out of here. My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive, they can be exploitative. We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit. I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair, how can she get away with this? 
And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules. And you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, does the FTC under chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule? Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition. There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.